And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wonderful Wednesday. Wonderful Wednesday means Bruce Anderson and smoke, mirrors, and the truth. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge in uh, Toronto. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. I got to tell you that, you know, we did a couple of programs last week. In fact, I think we've done three or four programs now in the last couple of weeks that have been more or less based on the whole issue of Chinese interference. And the response has been uh, quite overwhelming, especially so on the uh, YouTube channel, where you get to watch the video presentation of uh, whether it's smoke or good talk on on Fridays. And there's been, uh, you know thousands hundreds of thousands i think of of views and there have been um, lots of comments and i got a kick out of some of the comments um i mean first of all the comments section kind of drives home the polarization on this issue and you've seen it as well bruce where you know you're either vehemently anti-trudeau and some of the comments are just that they kind of make polyev's treason comments look uh, like peanuts uh, or you are like defending the prime minister and saying the opposition has got to lay off this is uh, crazy there's no proof on this story yet real proof etc etc so you see those divisions they the comment <laughs> i like the best and i've, I've been trying i've been puzzled by it ever since i got it was because all it said was stay retired so I tried to think of that. I did, like, which way are you supposed to take that? Because I, I, you know, sure, I retired from the CBC like six or seven years ago now. Um, but I've been working ever since on, on a variety of different things, including this podcast. So I'm not like retired. So is that stay retired mean that's a good thing? Or, or? Look, if you ask me, was that intended as praise? I don't think it probably was. No, but that was my initial response. That was my initial thought. I don't know. About, I, I think it was put in a little bit more of a negative context. But you know what? Maybe that's because I read so many of what I consider to be completely unfair comments on Twitter about the question that you put in whatever um, was posted about the episode. I think the question was something like, is it over the top? to suggest the prime minister is a traitor, which was the question that yeah. we discussed. And a, a considerable number of people whose views were in favor of Trudeau or supportive of Trudeau interpreted that as a as a legitimization of the question and a criticism implied of the prime minister, which, you know, if people listen to the show, um, you had a little bit of that point of view, but and not very much at all. And and so anyway, I think people, as you say, they they react in such a heightened fashion uh, with so much kind of energy and vitriol, especially on Twitter. Uh, I don't think it's the same on other platforms. In fact, I know it's not. We've done some stir- survey research on that recently, which we can talk about sometime. Uh, but uh, I, it also reminded me that there are two ways to read the polls about concern about China. Um, some people uh, do what 
observers often do, which is you look at what the majority thinks and you say Canadians aren't worried about election interference because the number is higher than 50%. Um, I tend to always look at the, well, what would, you know, a majority isn't necessarily the only important factor. Uh, it looks like from the latest polling that about 8 million adult Canadians, eligible Canadian voters, think our elections are not safe from interference. That's a lot of people. And if that number was more like 1 million 10 years ago, we should be concerned uh, about that. And so probably should not put the emphasis, in my estimation, on the 71% uh, who say we don't think that there's been a problem so far, but on the 29% who say there's a risk, especially given that it looks like about half of conservative voters have uh, doubts, skepticism uh, about our electoral system. That's a big number. And if we if we think of this as just another issue that will come and go, the news cycle will kind of wash it away at some point in time, then we haven't been paying enough attention to what happens in the United States, and we haven't been paying enough attention to what the opposition leader, Pierre Polyev, is doing with that suspicion, including yesterday. Anyway, I interrupted you and went off on a bit of a tangent, but not really a tangent. No, not or... re- not really, because that is, in fact, where I was heading. Um, it's interesting because you're, in a way, kind of in sync with Polyev. He, he's making the same argument, in, in, at least in one of his arguments, that that, that figure that it seems to run anywhere from 25 to 30% of Canadians um, are are concerned about the safety of the election process. And he's making that same argument that you are, that that is not an insignificant number. While we focus on the, whatever it may be, uh, you know, 70 to 75% who are, uh, feel the system is safe. When you're talking 25 to 30%, that is a big number. Yeah, the difference between he and I on this <laughs> There's probably a few of them, but the the main difference is he wants the number to be higher. I want the number to be lower. I think he has clearly decided that the more often he can say Trudeau is creating suspicion and creating suspicion that he has something to hide, the implication being that this is all kind of a part of a cooperation, soft or otherwise, between Trudeau and the Chinese, and that the only uh, unfortunate thing for the government is that um, somebody, some courageous whistleblower has shone a light on that. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's also the right thing for an opposition leader to say, and I don't think that if Pierre Polyev was the prime minister, that he would describe leaks from CSIS as courageous whistleblowing. I think there are lots of problems with what Mr. Polyev is doing. I think he is definitely trying to nurture, uh, blow air on embers to try to create a little bit more fire around this issue because um, because uh, he has political interests as he sees it in doing that. Um, you know, I read the story from yesterday about his his statement in the, um, I guess it was another form of news conference that he was having yesterday, or a scrum at least, uh, where he did this line about Trudeau's inspiring a lot of suspicion. 
about the election results. Um, now, that's a long way from where he was a week ago, where it was basically Trudeau's a traitor, he's guilty of treason. Those aren't his exact words, but they were certainly the implication in what he was saying. So he's in a way pulled back, but at the same time keeping that kind of keeping it on the front burner and the issue around suspicion and with a, you know, in not so many words, uh, the suspicion being that there is some kind of arrangement between Trudeau and China. Um, so that's yeah, still, I think still he's, out there. he's migrating the issue to the notion that liberals um, have an institutional interest in concealing Chinese interference uh, because it tends to favor them. So uh, he's already established the argument that he thinks Justin Trudeau is kind of a nefarious actor in this. Um, but it, I think to the extent that he can broaden it to be a question that goes to, does a liberal party have an institutional bias in favor of concealing this uh, activity? Uh, that then becomes a kind of a bigger political weapon for him, I suppose he would think. But I, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think that there are people who at some point are going to say, and maybe that point will be after the rapporteur is announced and probably uh, when some form of more public inquiry is in the cards, at some point people are going to get to see enough information that they're either going to decide that all of that, all of those allegations that Mr. Poliev is leveling at the government are hype and overstated by a lot and um, um, and unfortunate. Uh, but that's not today. Um, that's some time off in the future. And I think that to some degree, the government kind of created more problems for itself, as we've talked about before, by the way they handled these allegations in the first instance. You know, Polyev makes, um, you know, tries to pick up ground on the issue of transparency and he's, you know, constantly leveling at, uh, at Trudeau and, and other liberal ministers that they're not being transparent enough on this. They're not telling what they know. Um, and that, that appears true. We're saying the same thing, you know, and we've been saying the same thing for a couple of weeks. Why aren't they answering some of these questions? But all has got to tread carefully on this transparency issue because he has his transparency issues as well. We still don't know what the full story was on that. The use of his personal social media before he was the leader, appealing in a sense to right-wing groups, um, you know, extreme right-wing groups. Yeah. And he sort of ducked that one, as he has on some other things as well. So, I mean, you you got to be careful here when you're demanding transparency of others and you and you leave yourself open mm-hmm. to the same criticism. Uh, look, I think that the, in general, in life, and over the history of our observation of politics, that's true. I think that the chances that he will hold himself to a high standard of transparency are zero. I don't think that's who he is. I don't think that's how he approaches politics. I think his um, his setting is attack every day, and he'll worry about the consequences of um, overstatements, embellishments, um, you know, rhetorical flourish that goes beyond what others have done in the past is something that he aspires to, not that he will be cautious about doing. And I think to some degree, it's been the 
if there's a secret to his his success within his party, it has been because he's that guy. Because he'll say things that would make others kind of blush a little bit and say, well, well, that's that's harsh. That's over the top. That's, you know, uh, almost as you say, setting yourself up for criticism if you use those kind of, uh, if you use that level of rhetoric. Um, So in a way, it's been the thing that, from his standpoint, has probably worked better than anything else in his political career. I do think that there comes a time when people are, you know, in between elections, as we've talked about many times in the past, that it's not a question of... um, who am I going to vote for today? It's a question of how do I feel about the choices today and how might that affect my vote sometime in the future? Get closer to election. And I think then people do start to look at him and say, what do I know about him? How does he come across to me? Can I really trust him? Will he be a stabilizing force in a world and a country that feels like it could use that? I think that's one of the critical questions for him as he pursues this kind of politicking. I don't think he's worried about it now. I think he might pay a little bit of a price later on, but a lot of that will depend on uh, on the politics of the moment, whenever that is, a year from now or more. Well, uh, nobody's denying he's a you know he's a smart guy in terms of the use of uh, various tools to push his uh, message out. But he also has a record. I mean, because he's basically done nothing in his life except be a political figure on on Parliament Hill. There's lots to go back on in terms of his pastime as a minister, his pastime as an MP, things he said on various issues. And one of that's come to the fore this week on this discussion and debate and argument around whether or not Katie Telford, the chief of staff of the prime minister, should be before a committee answering questions. I'm not sure where I stand on on, on that one, quite frankly, because, you know, we've seen this over many years through many different governments of all political stripes. But, you know, Polyev is demanding she appears because there are questions to answer. Somebody dug up clips of Polyev uh, defending Dmitry Soudas, who was per- Stephen Harper's director of communications, who a committee wanted to have appear before them back in the Harper years. And Polyev was saying, no, 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 you go back through 300 years of, uh, you know, parliamentary history and see that the staffs of, of prime ministers or ministers shouldn't be put before a committee that it's accountability. It should be the minister. That's who should be there or the prime minister who should be there. Yeah. yeah. So that was interesting. <laughs> kind of, you know, it but, is. But yeah. I mean, that his, was then uh, and this is now. on these things I think are very situational and maybe it's fair to say that, 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 you know, he's not alone in politics in that regard, but I think what he's pursuing uh, by pushing this, so we must get her to appear is he's not pursuing information and transparency. He's pursuing a show that he thinks will be good politics for him. And maybe that show is repeated questions to which the answer is, I can't answer that question because to answer it would require me to divulge secret information and I'd be breaking the law. So, you know, and I can imagine that he would think that those would make uh, very useful clips for him politically, but I don't think it's uh, a... I don't think there's a case to be made that this is a way to shed more light on on this. I think there are other processes that are going to either do that or not, but um but this is 
this looks to me like pure politics. And and I think that the government could probably do a better job of just explaining why it is they can't answer certain questions and let the public understand that better. And, and maybe people will trust that, and maybe they won't. But I don't think that there has been enough of that kind of discussion by government figures so that the public can, you know, against this wall of sound from uh, Polyev and some in the news media, let's be honest, um, who every day are implying that the government must have something to hide uh, or else they would tell us everything. Well, that's not that's not right. I, you, I don't know if you watched this yesterday, Peter, but um, David Cochran, the new host of uh, Power and Politics on sure. CBC, had a really good interview with um, – Richard Fadden and Ward Elcock together yesterday, two former directors of um, CSIS. Yeah. And it was just a really good discussion where he asked them, you know, questions and, and it was kind of a calm tone and, and uh, an interesting environment. And they didn't have exactly the same opinion, those two people, but they talked about it respectfully of each other's opinion and they shed light, not just heat on this issue. And I think that, um, uh, you know, if people in government, in the government, were looking at that, um, there's a lesson in it, which is keep going out there and and kind of explaining uh, what it is that needs to be explained, rather than kind of letting the entire discussion pretty much be dominated by those skeptical and it, politically, anyway, hostile voices. What do the people want? Do they want light or do they want heat? And I mean that seriously, because you know, no matter which side you're on, there's a lot of heat on this story. Um, you own a newspaper, you want heat because you want clicks. And if you don't get clicks, your business is going to die. Um, what's the public want? The public, well, there's probably two ways to look at the public. There's a small portion of the public, less than 30%, for whom politics is a source of high drama and entertainment. And, um, you know, in some respects, it's like, uh, they have a, a sports team that they're deeply invested in, and they, in every shot that's taken, every uh, insult that's hurled, um, you know, is, is is nourishment for their their passion for politics. I don't mean to undermine or, or to to be critical of people who have this passion, but for them. Uh, a day with political drama is a good day, and then there's the rest of the population for whom. Don't bother me with politics unless there's something I really need to know is the more natural setting. And I think those people, to the extent that they engage in an issue like this that comes along, they want the rational, they want the calm, they want some information. They you know, want to hear the arguments because the arguments are part of how you make a choice as a citizen at election time or participate in conversations with your friends. Uh, but they, they want more light than heat. And um, I think this has become a big challenge in journalism. And um, and I don't mean that to be critical of journalists. I understand that the business models are really challenged. But why, when I see an interview like what David Cochran did yesterday, I it reminds me of those long-form interviews that you used to do with leaders of parties during elections. And, uh, you know, there's a reason why you would have observed and understood when you were doing those. That was some of the more popular work that you ever did. Um, and you did the one-on-one -on -one show as well, which um, a lot of people really enjoyed. 
Um, that's a better way for people to consume this kind of information in most cases. Do you want to expand on how great I was? Well, it's so long ago, it's hard to remember, to be honest. I'm just going to stay retired. Um, listen, the, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, uh, but I also watch what the government's doing. They're allowing this heat versus light to play out kind of endlessly because they can't get their act together in determining what to do, whether it's a you know, the appointment of a special rapporteur or, uh, you know, let's get on with some kind of inquiry or, 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 or public uh, uh, investigation uh, through a committee level uh, of what happened. They're letting it to play. They're allowing it to just keep on playing out, which gives the opposition exactly what they want. Time to, uh, you know, express their theories, express their condemnation of the government. And, uh, you know, so I'm not surprised it's having the impact it's having. Yeah, I think it's one of the one of the challenges when you're in government is something like this happens and you realize that you've kind of made a mistake and how you've handled it. And then the first thing that you need to do is kind of apply some anesthetic. You need to kind of freeze the uh, the situation that you're in so that you can have the time to provide a more permanent solution. And I think that's the zone that the government's in right now. Um, and I think also um, there's only one person who's going to decide what that permanent solution looks like, and it's the prime minister. And so you've got ministers who have responsibilities for different parts of, of this conversation um, able to say certain things about what they know and what they're involved in I saw a good interview from uh, Marco Mendocino on Sunday um, uh, about that. and uh, But ultimately, it's going to be up to the prime minister to make the next several decisions. Who's going to be the rapporteur, uh, what that time frame is. And I thought it was interesting that um, Messrs. Elcock and Fadden both talked about what the time frame for this was. And Fadden in particular, I think, said, a little bit of the challenge that the prime minister's got is he's kind of set up mechanisms that might make it really difficult for people to know more about this before the next election. And I think that's a fair point. I think when you look at the report uh, that Morris Rosenberg did uh, as chair of that committee of uh, senior officials, he said it's important for people to know in the pre-writ period what's going on. I really believe that. I don't think that we can we can build confidence by saying we'll let you know after an election whether it was um, compromised. I think that the influence happens all the time. And if that's true, and all of these experts say it's been happening for a long time, then people need more regular updates on what to know, what to look out for, what to be concerned about, and what we're doing about it. Why, why did you turn down the uh, special rapporteur's position. It's funny. Uh, I keep on putting your name in the mix and everybody's like, oh, I don't think he speaks French enough to spell rapporteur, but that's a separate <laughs> issue. That's a good point. Uh, see, folks, he didn't deny, right? He didn't deny. We'll keep that in mind. Better start sounds looking like a, for... Sounds like a terrible job. But <laughs> a really important sure does. Nevertheless, I better start looking for... A, Back up just in case he disappears for a couple of years on that job. All right, we're going to move on. And, and to perhaps some people's surprise, we're going to move on to a different element of the Pierre Polyev story, one which 
has only surfaced in the last couple of days and one in which Bruce is very impressed. So we'll talk about that when we come back. All right, welcome back. You're listening to Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth on the Bridge this Wednesday. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Toronto. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, or on your favorite podcast platform, or on our YouTube channel, which, as I was saying earlier, is getting a fair amount of action, and uh, we're happy with that. Surprised a little bit, but happy nevertheless. Uh, all right, Bruce, Pierre Polyev. Um Quite apart from this whole issue that we've spent the first, you know, 20, 25 minutes talking about, um, you were impressed with his performance on trying to, ex- I guess, exploit as sounds negative. It's not trying to underline the issue around the economy. And what was it you were impressed by? Well, I think that uh, what really struck me is that um, there are days, and including on, I think, last Friday, when he posted a, um, I guess, a selfie video where he held his camera right up to his face. And and I I thought it was a shockingly bad uh, communications technique. So there are days where he does things from a communication standpoint that I think are, are really poorly advised and executed. But then I also saw this press conference that he did on Sunday morning. And I know that some people, I think, were wondering, well, why is he doing it on Sunday morning? And is it, you know, is it to avoid contact with the press? And, you know, possibly that's true. Um, But it doesn't really matter. He went out and he, there was a camera and he did a 14-minute spiel and there was fluency to it. Um, We've known for some time that he's a fluent speaker. Um, but I think if the other parties were looking at the way that he talked about the economy, the way that he wove a story that included anecdotes and used language that didn't sound institutional, didn't sound to 30,000 foot level that average people could probably relate to, um, this is a cautionary thing for other parties. He's pretty effective at doing that. Uh, his and the other thing I noticed is that and he does this quite a bit now, is that if if there are some voters who tended to think of the Conservative Party in the past as the party of big business and tax cuts for the rich, he is not describing uh, what he would do in a way that reinforces that. If anything, he's describing a Conservative Party that is not for those things, that is for regular working people. He talks about powerful paychecks. He talks about bringing jobs home. Um, it's it's a version, if you like, of Trumpism in the sense that it's aimed at um, people who found the uh, economic scenario more challenging in recent years, uh, perhaps. Uh, but it isn't a full-on Trumpism. And it's definitely, um, I know that we're going to hear a lot when I say this, but it's it's more intelligible um, and more likely to be effective with Canadians if they hear him tell his version of reality that way. Now, there are lots of things in what he says that I don't agree with, that I don't think are right, that I don't think are accurate. But I was really struck by 
how in politics your opponents can can almost kind of look away from the best communications moments you have and ignore them and just focus on the things that you do that they can make fun of or that they can they can hype a criticism about and not look at the things that their opponents are doing that are effective. And a little bit of that could be said about Justin Trudeau in 2015. And I sort of recall uh, saying some of those things myself, looking at his communication style and not liking it very much. And, and, uh, and I, I, I may have even said things like that on at issue back in the day to which, you know, in the end I had to admit I was wrong about that, that there were other days that he was having where his ability to connect with people was much greater than what I had perceived. So I've always sort of taken from that experience and others as well, I suppose, that that to understand that how any individual reacts to a bad day or a particular piece of communication isn't the same as how somebody might somebody else might react to a different piece of communication. And I've seen some pieces from him that that kind of looked like they were weaving a story uh, that was maybe a little bit more interesting uh, to average voters and something that his opponent should take more seriously, including yesterday. Uh, he put out a video about suing Big Pharma because he thought Big Pharma should pay the price for the devastating damage that their uh, efforts caused through the opioid addiction. And in the way that he uh, manufactured or his team manufactured this video, there was music behind it. I don't know if you've seen it on, uh, I saw it on Twitter. Um, and he seemed, if you were looking for evidence that he was a compassionate individual, you could you could see and hear things that confirmed that he had compassion for those individuals. If you were looking for, he's tough on bad businesses, there was plenty of that. Um, if you were looking for, I want the streets cleaned up because I don't want to see homeless people on that, uh, on them. There was enough of that. I completely disagree with his policy ideas on this. So I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm just saying that he can have a bad policy idea and find a pretty effective way of explaining it so that, um, people might not see the flaws in it and might hear some things that, that are kind of attractive and reassuring him. And as we all know, those kind of communication skills can make a big difference, even with policy that one disagrees with when the when the time comes. And he's entering into some turf right now over the next couple of weeks where he is most comfortable, and that is dealing on the economy. We've got a budget coming up, Christian Freeland's budget um, in the next uh, 10 days to or so, and you know, for Polyev, he must be looking forward to this because there's something about his communication skills, once again, and it kind of it, it plays out from what you were just saying, where he can take macro ideas and, and bring them down to street level where, uh, you know, the person on the street can identify with what he's saying where they might not have identified with what was said in the budget uh, in terms of understanding it at their level and what it means could mean to them. Um, so he enters this next little while after a, you know, a, an interesting week on the security issue, not that he's going to drop that. Um, but when it hits the economy, which supposedly is one of the first or second top issues that confront Canadians right now, 
um, it'll be turf that he understands and he likes playing on. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that's happening is that that at this um, point in the life of an incumbent government, a lot of the key players uh, don't really spend much time or put in much effort to criticize their opponents. They spend most of their time kind of doing the administrative jobs that they have in government or defending their policies or announcing their programs. But um, at the same time, I think it's fair to say, maybe you'll tell me I'm wrong about this, but I don't find that in the media there's an awful lot of scrutiny of whether Polio's policy ideas hold up or whether or not he's being consistent. I think that you do a little bit of that, obviously. And um, But I, I, I do think that we have a situation where um, the major print organizations anyway in Canada, and I use print in the print and digital uh, sense, uh, tend to be a little bit more easygoing on uh, on what he represents and, and pretty focused on on the government and maybe that's the normal course of things but I I don't I, I think he gets a little bit of a free ride on on a lot of those kinds of positions that he takes and so and, and the NDP aren't going to challenge him so if the liberals don't find it uh, within themselves to figure out exactly how to raise awareness of what his policy ideas really are about um, if they think that they can do that in the context of a 37-day campaign, if they think uh, ultimately there's going to be too many people that are, just aren't going to like his style, which is something that you hear people say, my thought is um, he's within two or three, four percentage points of winning a majority government. He doesn't need to make everybody excited in a positive way about what he says and and how he says it. Um he only needs about two or three or four more percentage points. And uh, so uh, the Liberals have a fight on their hands with this guy, as far as I'm concerned. And um, it's maybe not a fight to to uh, push too far off into the future. You know, if they're banking on a style issue, um, you know, we've seen both sides of the style issue with Polyev in the last week. I mean, the trader stuff was something he pulled away from within hours. Uh and whether it was considered a mistake or whether it was worth just prodding the the so-called base with that line uh, on one day but abandoning it after that. Um, so we saw that element of his style, and then we saw, uh, we saw the element that you're talking about on, uh, on uh, Sunday in that news conference and his uh, ability to sort of play some of the big economic issues into a level that uh, uh, all Canadians can, uh, can understand. Um, let me just, you know, before Do we need to take a break, I don't mean to, uh, we, t- we took you a know. break. You didn't hear okay. it. All right. <laughs> I don't know if we need to take another one. Well, listen to you're the boss yeah, and uh, whatever you say is fine you know, he, by me. And no, we're going to talk about when he was whining, but before we started today about how I was playing the music or this, that, or the other, I accused him of wanting to take over the show, to be the host. You know the the bridge with Bruce Anderson or Andy with Anderson or whatever we'd call it. I think we'd come up, and we laughed that off. And now here he is saying, "Shouldn't you be taking a break?" Let's go to our last topic. (laughs) What is it? Our last topic. Well, we were going to talk about the agreement between Australia, the UK, and um, yeah. Look, I you know I think we disagree on this one too because I have some. 
I, I thought it looked bad on us not being there. Um, now, whether we were invited or not, I, I have no idea. But, uh, you know, I don't think, you know, the price of an, a, a nuclear-powered submarine was the admission ticket to be in that meeting. It was supposedly about, you know, the Pacific in a new era of uh, concerns about whether it's Chinese trade or Chinese military activity or, or what have you. Um, but we weren't there. And uh, that surprised me. Now you take a different view on this. Well, I did go back to the original announcement in September of 2021 of this um, uh, AUK USA, I guess is how you would say it. And what happened in the run up to that, of course, was that uh, that Australia was looking to buy nuclear submarines, nuclear powered submarines. And um, after I guess some time of, uh, of thinking that they didn't want any nuclear powered anything uh, there. Um, and they had a contract uh, lined up with France uh, and they canceled the contract with France, which caused a major um, breach in that relationship. Um, and instead uh, they went ahead with a contract essentially to do the procurement with the U S and with, uh, and with the UK, the UK providing propulsion technology, I think, and um, the U.S. providing a bunch of other components. So Australia wanted to buy some submarines um, for their use within their region. Um, And this arrangement came to be because those three countries wanted to cooperate in that procurement process. Now, in the last election campaign, I guess Aaron O'Toole criticized the, uh, the Liberals for not being part of the conversation, and the Prime Minister said, it's about uh, Australia wanting uh, submarines, and we're not in the submarine market. Uh, we don't see a need for them. And um, and uh, subsequently, of course, the the government of Canada put out its Indo-Pacific strategy, and I took another look at it this morning, and it included the notion that we were going to be adding frigates to our uh, role in, in Pacific and a lot of other arrangements that we have in place with other Pacific nations. So, yeah, I... I think it's, you know, maybe it's partly the Canadian way to kind of wonder why we didn't get invited to the party or the meeting, that sort of thing. But I, I, I don't see much in this Accusa that where we would expect to to jump in um, unless we want to be part of, uh, of at least that initial um, submarine program. And I think it's reasonable for us to say we don't. Um, but... And that's you're, where, you're and, that, and that's that's where we differ. But uh, neither one of us are military experts, so uh, who knows? But uh, I think a lot has changed since the original uh, discussion around this, um, you know, three country situation. A lot has changed in the Pacific. A lot has changed because of China. A lot has changed because of uh, our, uh, our 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 new and long-awaited focus on the Arctic. Um, you know, if other countries are, you know, going through the, the Northwest Passage in, with submarines, and there's every mm-hmm. indication they are, um, should we be in that market in a better way than we are right now? Most of, our submar- the- most of our submarines are terrific for above water, not so good below water. And that's been a history of our submarines over the last few decades. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I, I didn't know. know. I, I looked at um, President Biden's speech. Um, right. From a couple of days ago, I guess. And I have to say that he you have to go almost all the way through it before you get to him saying, and this isn't the submarines isn't the only thing here. And then there was very little bit behind that. Um, so, you know, that and I remember the criticism, I think, of the opposition parties here was if we'd been part of this discussion, we might have been able to use it to put more pressure on China to get the two Michaels back. It felt like a political stretch to me. We're still part of the Five Eyes uh, intelligence sharing agreement, which involves New Zealand, which isn't part of uh, the Acusa uh, scenario. There are lots of Indo-Pacific nations that have a direct interest in defense and security, including Japan, which isn't part of Acusa. So, um, you know, I think your argument that that maybe we need submarines is, you know, a separate argument from whether or not we should be part of this agreement. Yeah, I, you know, I agree. And I, the problem with submarines is they're incredibly expensive. There's a very long lead time on, you know, if you're buying new ones. If you go into the used market, uh, there are lots of people out there who want to sell you something. <laughs> That's how we ended up in the mess we're in now on our submarine stuff. Um, uh, although I guess some naval commanders might um, suggest that I'm wrong on that. But nevertheless, um. Okay, well, we've settled that. We've settled all these we things. Settled that they're all all settled, and uh, we. I've given got a the big blueprint. board back here where I put a little check mark for the ones that the points that I won. It, it's getting a little full. But I'm going to add one more. <laughs> well, you're very good at that, and I'm glad that you're taking the the view that you need to keep a list and you need to write it down and do check marks because it's you good. You can't for measure it. You can't, you know, what's the saying? You can improve on it or whatever. <laughs> if you can't measure it, it didn't happen. Yeah. So you're heading over to Scotland and uh, you're going to go to our favorite little town and on yep. the edge of the North Sea. That's what I'm going to do. And, you know, well, I, I'm going to test out the airplane, uh, and the airline uh, business tonight, because I've got a series of different flights and uh, going through a number of different countries trying to get to my uh, destination. And we'll see how, uh, I mean, it started, I, w I went to check in last night and the, they've already changed the plane and changed my seat to the worst possible seat. I don't know that if it's I, the I can get. And, uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm trying to fight that one. So things have got off to a great start. I'm really a little bit doubtful that it's the worst possible seat on the airplane. <laughs> Pretty bad. Do you know what the safest seat on an airplane is? I just read this on the the other day. What, safest what place yeah. to seat to sit. The saf safest seat to sit in, according mm -hmm. to all the analysis of past, you know, as horrible as it sounds, past accidents, et cetera, et cetera. The safest seat on the plane, take a guess. The last row, the last seat. Well, the last row was correct. The middle seat in the last row. So is that the seat that you have for tonight? No, that's the best seat. <laughs> oh, I see. So you got the worst seat. It's like up at the front no. by the window or something like that. <laughs> no, the best seat, safest seat on the plane is the middle seat of the last row. 
Well, and, it, you know, why it is might that? Be safer, but why, I still why, don't want why it. is that? It reminds me of that old, you know, remember Bob Newhart? We're old enough. You're old enough to remember Bob Newhart, one of the great stand-up uh, comedians and, of course, had a number of successful television shows. Uh, he used to do this thing in stand-up about flying on an airline and all the crazy things that uh, that happen. Um, <laughs> he talked about the announcement where, uh, you know, keep your seatbelt uh, on in case we come to a sudden stop. And then he goes, like against a mountain. <laughs> as bizarre as that sounds. Anyway, the, um, the last seat, or the last row, because when planes have bad accidents, it's usually the front end that gets hit mm -hmm. first, whether it's in I the did. ground, in I a mountain, in the water, or whatever. I don't know that. Yeah. I'm never going to think about that again. I, just, uh, I don't want to think <laughs> no. about that. Well, well I'll, I'll, I'll stop there because well. there is more yeah. to that story. But anyway, I, hopefully the things will get sorted out. And when I next talk to you on Friday with Chantel, I'll be uh, on the other uh, on the other side of the uh, the big pond, as they say. Well, okay, I look forward to that. Yeah, I'll I be bet over you in do. the Royal Burg of uh, of Dornick, and uh, I'm exactly. envious, and I'm going over a little bit later on. But uh, all right, wish you a good trip. We'll leave it at that for now. Tomorrow is uh, your turn, so uh, wheel it in. I got a lot of criticism this week. Not on Polyev, not on Trudeau, not on China, not on referees. A lot of criticism about curling. We'll hear that tomorrow. And, of course, the random ranter will be by. So uh, that's tomorrow. Friday is Good Talk, which when uh, Chantel joins uh, Bruce and I for uh, our take, her take, his take, my take on the, uh, the week gone by. That's it for now. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Bruce. We'll talk to everyone again Peter. in 24 hours. Peter.